Uber and Lyft both reported this. They reported 13,963 sexual assaults. It actually gets worse. Introducing the Protectors. Inside criminal minds from around the world. Presented by the IAFCI. Leaders in safeguarding consumers from fraud and scams for more than 50 years. And now your hosts, International President Mark Solomon and Chairman of the Board Michael Carroll. Hello, everybody. This is Mike Carroll, International Chairman of the International Association of Financial Crimes Investigators. I am with Mark Solomon, our International President. How are you doing, Mark? Mike, I'm doing all right. Uh, Looking towards this very special podcast today. And uh, it's uh, heart-wrenching, but also uh, a story of hope and and conviction of a brave family that is uh, trying to do the best to cope with a loss of a loved one and, and then protect others as well. So very honored to have our next guest on. Yeah, Mark, let's just go right to our podcast. Did you want to introduce a little background on our guest? I will. So our next guest is such an incredible person. He and his family suffered greatly as they lost their daughter, Samantha, to the evil acts of another. At 21 years old, her life was taken from her family, friends, and the world far too early. However, her family has kept her memory alive and, more importantly, has been spearheading the fight to protect others. We would like to welcome to the show founder of What's My Name Foundation, Seymour Josephson. Hi, gentlemen. Thank you for having me, and uh, I appreciate the time and the opportunity to speak with you. Thank you again, Seymour. Can you just start off by telling a little about your background and your family? Yeah, sure. Um, So my background for 30-something years was all in sales, technology sales. I did that working for large companies, startups, and so forth. My wife is a retired speech and language therapist in a school district. She just retired um, a year ago. And um, so she helps me. She goes around to conferences and to high schools with me and uh, where we present to the kids and police around our foundation. And my oldest daughter, Sydney, who was 20 months older than Samantha, is uh, a nurse at Children's Hospital in Pennsylvania. She's a great person, um, strong person, and um, she's, a, she's a good egg, as I always say. And Seymour, can you tell us uh, a little bit about Samantha, what she was planning on doing? Uh, she was a student, right, at the uh, Uni- University of South Carolina? Yeah, so she was a student there. Um, she was getting ready to graduate. The weekend before everything happened, um, she came home. They, uh, Drexel University flew her up because she was going to attend law school in Philadelphia. And uh, she actually had a uh, full scholarship to go to uh, Drexel Law. Um, wow. But she was going back and forth between Drexel and, and uh, Rutgers. Rutgers University offered her, I don't know, like 70%. And uh, when Drexel offered her full scholarship, it was kind of hard to pass that up. Mm, Yeah. I have a 21-year-old as well, and and I can't imagine as a parent what you guys went through. And if you could explain briefly to our audience uh, the events that led up to your uh, daughter's death. So um, 
the day before she um she always had trouble using her credit card for whatever reason for uh an Uber or a Lyft. So she always used mine. She called me that evening, asked me if it was okay. I said fine. Um she went out celebrating with her friends to uh, a bar in the area that's called Five Points. Um, so she went down to uh, Five Points with her friends to celebrate, A, they're all getting ready to graduate, and B, um, that she got into law school with a scholarship. And honestly, the week before, two weeks before, a lot of her roommates and friends didn't even know that, they didn't know that she even had a scholarship. She was a very, I guess, embarrassed because she was a jokester. She was always laughing, always wanted to have fun, and she didn't like rubbing it into other spaces. So, um, so she was going out to celebrate, and then she left early from her friends. She wasn't separated, which there was reports that, but she actually left early because she had to go to work the next morning. And when she was leaving, you, everybody sees her getting into the car, talking to her boyfriend. And, um, you know, um, they said that within two miles, everything happened to her. And, and she, uh, she was found 65 miles away. Wow. Well, Seymour, the suspect was arrested by law enforcement shortly after the incident. Can you? The next night. Can you? The next night, wow. I was going to ask wow. you that. Wow. Yeah, he came around, and there's video of her and him, because of five points, there's so many cameras there. He circled that area a couple times, and then he was sitting off to the side and um, was waiting and and watching her. And uh, she actually tried to get into a different car prior, um, and that car said no and pulled off, and then he pulled in right behind that car. So he was looking he was stalking somebody and um when he came by so they had a ball out for the car so they could actually pull any black um four-door sedan over in the state of south carolina or north carolina they had a ball out for him and when he came back the next night and he actually had a female another female in the car oh my god um, a police officer came up behind him and he went up a one-way street the wrong way. And when uh, they pulled him over, um, it smelled like a pot. And then they asked him to get out of the car. When he got out of the car, he started running. And then at that time, they found a Samantha cell phone and car keys in his car. And then... Um, when they were doing that, they found um, a tremendous amount of blood still in the car, and that's when they stopped because they figured that's who, you know, yeah. that this was the person. Get a search warrant. Yeah, and they impounded the car, got the search warrant. They wanted to make sure they dotted their I's and crossed their T's to make sure that, you know, everything was up and up. Exactly. We actually, uh, when we were down there, I requested to meet the officers that captured him to thank them and um, to shake their hands and give them a hug. 
God, you know, there, there obviously was going to be a second victim, um, you know, if the officers did not step in and, and uh, really be out there looking for the suspect. So thank God that they were out there doing the right thing. Seymour, I want to, uh, how did this impact your family? And I, I want to talk about, obviously, this must have been devastating as parents uh, to a sister that was so close in age. But how did you cope through this horrible time? Um, I haven't finished coping. Um, it's a daily thing for me. It's a daily thing for my wife. Um, the, the problem, um, you know, we, we deal with this on a daily basis. Every, anybody that loses a child, you will deal with it on a forever basis. But with us, there was a couple of different factors that come into it from not being able to identify the body because it was so gruesomely um, murdered um, that we also started the foundation where I talked to, like today, I talked to seniors at a local high school. You know, I've done this probably about 10 times this year, and then I'm speaking at different conferences. So. I am constantly bringing it up about Samantha. I am constantly talking about what transpired. So every single time I am ripping, I don't even know if there was a Band-Aid, um, but I'm ripping that Band-Aid off and just being crushed. And usually after I get done speaking to somebody um, from a school or colleges, um, it takes a while to just recover where I just want to come home and sleep. Mm. So, you know, mm. it's, so my long short answer is that I'm still coping. Um, it's been a, the worst nightmare. I can't believe it's been over four years where I haven't seen her or heard from her. Um, my oldest daughter, I am absolutely thrilled that she lives in Philadelphia. She has a great job. Um, she lives in the same building as friends. Um, her friends group support has been tremendous because this could really tear a family apart with what transpired. And, um, that was one of our biggest concerns for my wife and I, um, was that. Yeah. Well, I, I can't commend your entire family any more than what you're doing incredibly difficult circumstances, but, you know, that you have the courage to go out there and, and, and make sure that nobody else is victimized by someone like this uh, criminal. And uh, so uh, we appreciate what you're doing out there and our audience uh, does as well. Appreciate that. It's, it's um, you know, it's hard because um, I quit my job to run the foundation. And, um, you know, last week I had a question from one of the one of the kids at a high school asking me, um, do you think you're making an impact? So I, you know, I went right back at him saying, you know, and not, I said, I'm not trying to be a smart ass. I go, but you tell me, you tell me if I'm having an impact, you're sitting here, you're listening. Tell me, did I have an impact? And he goes, yeah. I said, well, there you go. So, you know, we're trying to have an impact. We're trying to make a difference by speaking to the kids, trying to get federal laws passed, trying to get the information out and Sammy's signs and from colleges to airports and so forth. So, you know, we receive emails and DMs from people, but 
you just hope that you're making a difference. And that's all you can do is, is hope. Seymour, we, we wanted to ask you about What's My Name Foundation, but before we go to that, I just want to go back on this convicted murderer. Um, at trial, were you given an opportunity, you know, you found guilty, sentenced to life in prison. Mm-hmm. Were you yep. able to talk at sentencing? So, yeah, we were able to um, give an impact statement. So we had, um, I had about 98, 99 impact statements from family and friends that I made into like a binder uh, that I gave to the judge. And then prior to sentencing, um, Sydney, Marcy, and myself, were able to get up and give an impact statement um, right there. Can I ask you, this individual, this convicted murderer, when, what was his defense? Um, it seemed like a solid case. So um, in the beginning, the attorney said, I just remember the, the, um, the number zero. There's no DNA. There's zero DNA, and there happened to be DNA found and they found other DNA on her as well. So they're really, they didn't call one witness. Um, and I know that the solicitors, uh, the prosecutors there were trying to get them to call a couple witnesses because the witnesses that they were supposed to be calling, um, the solicitors, they actually ended almost like a day early. And we didn't know that. And I started panicking and going, what the hell's going on here? And because they didn't call about five witnesses, four or five witnesses. And they were trying to get them to call them up. But they didn't call one witness. Um, They didn't really push back. They didn't talk bad about Samantha, um, which I appreciate it. Really didn't do anything. They questioned different witnesses, but they really had no defense. Wow. I mean, there was videos of him. There were there was blood all in the car. There was they found her cell phone keys, and um, they traced the cell phones together. You know, they did everything to prove that, and he had multiple cell phones as well. Um, and they were even like within an hour of him. Um, disposing of Samantha, for lack of better words, he was watching porn on a phone. Well, I, you know, so, Seymour, I could tell you that, uh, thank God, this person will never see the light of day. So I wanted to kind of talk a little bit about how What's My Name got started, and then uh, how did you decide that this was what you needed to do and what your family needed to do? You know, that's that's the million dollar question, I think. Um, <laughs> you know, so there was the SAMI acronym was actually created by a friend of Samantha's down in South Carolina where they had plaques made and they um, handed, got them made and they put them up in the bars. So that happened extremely quick within weeks. And I had here come here. Um, Congressman Chris Smith came to my house 
and just really ask what can he do, what can they do, what can we, you know, what can we do to help change. Um, we had just different folks come and asking what, you know, what is there that can be done. And then when we went on to Good Morning America, and I think in my visual speeches that I gave the two, you know, I always just always said that my my goal is for this to never happen again. Um, I'm going to do everything in my power to to do that, and it just led into creating the foundation. Um, and I, honestly, I had no idea what the hell I was doing. I had no idea what a 501c was nonprofit. I had no idea anything. Only thing is that I knew that I had a mic in front of me and the opportunity to do something. And I, and I really, as I said, even this morning and yesterday to a group of students, I go, you know, this is the worst nightmare that a parent could have. Um, and when I talk to the kids, I say to them, I don't want you to be one of the statistics. And I don't. And I just felt compelled to do something to try to help somebody. And, you know, I don't know if I'm doing it or not doing it. I think I am. But, um, you know, that's how really how it starts. You're doing it because I remember uh, this happening on the news. I have a daughter in college and, you know, the word is spreading, you know, and safety and making sure that people are getting in the proper vehicles, uh, verifying who the driver is. So it is working and I, I commend you for what you're doing and, and keep fighting. Seymour, what's my name supports other organizations or foundations? Yeah, we've done a lot. We've um, this year alone, we've given out um, to seniors nine scholarships. And then we created a scholarship to um, seven or eight different colleges to create a scholarship for funding for the police to do something in the ride share. Uh, we've given to multiple women's groups and, and so forth to different organizations as well. And it's all about, you know, we, we're, we're trying to give back. You know, we, we are our 501c. We're a nonprofit where we raise money to go to conferences to speak to police chiefs and security and airports. So we, we travel the country doing that. But what we also try to do is give back to the community, give back to the kids and really have them think about what they're doing, going out, leaving their bubble, going out to the real world. Yeah, it's, you know, as a young, you know, teenager experiencing your first time uh, maybe away from home, uh, your children are not expecting uh, horrible things to happen. So with you going out there and sharing this tragic story, you know, it, it gives them some focus, I think, to realize that there are dangerous people out there. There's dangerous situations. You know, we want you to love life and enjoy life in your teenage years, but, you know, you, you need to have that guard up a little bit. So you know, you are getting that message out. I wanted to ask you real quick about uh, what does SAMI stand for? It's an acronym, correct? Yes. So uh, Samantha's nickname was Sammy. 
So taking her nickname, um, the S is stop, know where your uh, safety features are, know where 911 is. The A is ask, ask the driver, what's my name? You know, who's he there for? Because the driver knows they have that information. And everything that we're doing is to be done before you get into the car. Because once you're in the car, it's too late. The back door locks were engaged, as well as the child safety locks were engaged in Samantha's car. So A is for ask the driver, what's my name, before you get into the car. The M is match the license plate and display of the car. And you can't be lazy because there are 19 states that do not have front license plates. So in those 19 states, you have to walk behind the car to confirm that that is your car. And then the I is informed, share the ride details with a loved one, with friends, roommates, parents. So my goal is always when I talk to the kids is if I can get you to do two of the four, if I can get you to ask what's my name and match a license plate and display, you are much safer than what Samantha was just getting into the car. And if you can do it before you get into the car, you are safer. That is incredible advice to give, uh, you know, if you're doing ride shares and, uh, you know, that's just perfect. You know, like the chances of something bad happening reduce significantly after you take those simple steps. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, on the flip side, we're trying to create this federal law, right? And what we're trying to do is get them, I'm saying them, Uber and Lyft, and there's about 33, 35 rideshare companies in North America. Believe it or not, Uber and Lyft happen to just be the two largest ones. But if we can get on the federal side a mandate of federal law to get some type of confirmation before you get into the car. So Uber, working with them and dealing with them, they came out with about a year and a half ago, two years ago, a four-digit PIN. But 99% of the people don't even realize that that's an option. And what it is, it's a four-digit PIN. So you have to go into your Uber app. You go into settings. You go hit verify my ride. And then you go over to that and you say all the time, you will receive a four-digit PIN, a random PIN, one, two, three, four, nine, five, two, three, whatever it is. When that Uber driver pulls up, roll down the window, give that driver that PIN, one, two, three, four, whatever it is. If it is your car, your phone will vibrate to confirm. If it is not your car, nothing happens to your phone. And then on top of it, if it's an impersonator, they don't even have the ability to do that. So right there, you're just much safer. So Seymour, that is some great information. I was uh, unaware of it. So we're going to get that out on our show notes for our audience and listeners. So thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. 99% of the population doesn't even know about it. And Uber has that. Lyft will have whatever they want. But that's what we're moving forward, trying to create. Um, is that federal law on that that part of using technology companies and having them, they're transactional technology companies, and having them do that confirmation before. So with the SAMI acronym and with that, you know, nothing to 100% in life here, as we know, but you're a lot safer. I think that'd be great, something mandatory. And you're saying for all rideshare companies in the industry, 
that this should be mandatory well, for that all of them? Would be, have yeah, a pin if, number. If and when we get the federal law passed, it would be for all rideshare companies, yes. Um, Uber uses a four-digit pin. As a, we, we want that to be the standard platform. And it's wild because Uber just came out with a, several weeks ago, a few weeks ago, that in order to kids use an Uber, they have to use this four-digit pin. So it used to be that if you're under the age of 18, policy for the rideshare industry was that you couldn't use you know, an Uber or Lyft. They weren't allowed to pick you up. Now they're saying, all right, with the four-digit pin, we know that's safer environment that they have to use to verify my ride. Now, why don't they make it permanent and make it for the remaining um, passengers? Million-dollar question, as they have spent $3 million lobbying against us. So we're in a constant battle. Wow. Do you know why they're they're lobbying against that? I mean, it's, a, it's there for protecting... You know, so, yeah. So they originally, they said um, they didn't want any legislation. Um, They said, we'll do it on our own. Just leave us alone. And I told them to go pound. So I don't know if it's just they think that they become more liable because they've had this for two years, a year and a half, two years. They haven't made it mandatory, uh, made it their platform. I don't know. Um, Got it. I just know that it's a constant battle with them. Yeah, well, let's hope uh, all the rideshares come to their senses. And, and we're in an age now where you do multi-factor authentication for pretty much anything that you do. And, you know, using this as a tool to make sure the, the, the passengers are are safe. And, and, you know, I would hope that they would do that voluntarily. And if not, we need to, we need the federal government to uh, legislate that. Seymour, I wanted to ask you, Sammy's Law, it was signed in January of 2023. Can you tell us what was in that, that legislation, and did you get any pushback from the rideshare industry on that law? So let me bring it back to the beginning of that, because this it would make a lot more sense of what the law is and how it transpired and where we're going with. So... When Chris Smith came to my house and we started talking about trying to create federal law legislation, we ended up going down to D.C., Marcy and I, um, and we've been to D.C. probably more than I would care to be, and we've met with the leaders. So we met with, at the time, Speaker Pelosi, Kevin McCarthy, uh, Mitch McConnell, um, Schumer's team, uh, every leader every congressman from, and then as well as senators all around the rideshare industry and what transpired. Then what happened was that, all right, we're going to create something. We're, we're going to do A, B, C, and D. And then we started getting pushback about using QR codes from the National Federation of the Blind um, and other organizations. And so we listened to them and we go, all right, that makes sense. You know, that pushback. Then what we did was we brought in Uber and Lyft to the negotiations. And I, because I said, I wanted to get their input and their buy-in, but I want to understand where they're coming from. The more educated that I am, the better off I am. More information I have, what I do with that information is what's important. So originally, we had letter of support 
when it was all said and done for a couple different areas. One was using as a baseline, an example would be Uber with the four-digit PIN, right? That that would be their standard platform. Then we would have the second part would be a SAMI council made up of 15 members. That 15 members would have somebody like from Uber, from Lyft, an organization um, like mine would have uh, people from the government, so Congress, Senate, uh, DOT. We would meet once, twice a year, then report back to the DOT secretary. So that was the second part. The third part was making signs illegal to purchase from unauthorized dealers. And then the fourth part was called a GAO study, the Government Accountability Office. Government was going to do a study on the industry. So that would be not just on rideshare, but on like on taxis and limos and everything. So we passed Congress unanimously bipartisan, then went to the Senate. The Democrats voted on called their vote is hotline, passed with them, then went to the Republican side. Mike Lee and Rand Paul held it up, and then they said put it in the last omnibus bill when Trump was in office, and uh, Mark Meadows said yes, then Donald Trump said yes, and that was on a Friday. On a Sunday, we got told take it out. So then we had to start all over again because it's a new administration. So we had found that during that process that Uber was spending a tremendous amount of money lobbying against us. And then they were writing letters of non-support after writing a letter of support. So when we started back up for the second time with the new administration, we started with the same negotiations, trying to get them to do the technology part and then to do the SAMI Council. Um, We're getting a tremendous amount of pushback. They were spending millions of dollars lobbying against us. So then we said, all right, let's just go with making signs illegal and then doing the GAO study. Rand Paul and Mike Lee and a couple of others were like, we don't need the signs to be part of it. Um, so their trademark, it's already illegal for them to sell it. Well, you can still buy it today. A lot of good. Um, so what was eventually just signed on January 5th was the GAO study, where they're going to do a year-long investigation of the industry. And, you know, Uber and Lyft both came out with their self-reported um, incidents. Um, the other companies that are privately owned have not come out with anything. They're not being forced to yet. Then... I guess they want validation to say that, you know, the industry is actually as bad as they're saying it is, um, or even worse. And the supposedly Senate and the Congress, when they get a GAO study, there's more validity to the report and to God. easier to pass laws because of the GAO study. And it sounds like there's a, a lot more that needs to be done beyond a, a study. So let's hope, you know, they follow through yeah, with that. It's, and It's pretty wild because, in a, for, and I just didn't realize this. So 
you know, the rideshare industry is a fairly new industry, right? It's only been around 10, 12 years or something like that. So there's not a lot of information on it. So it's just, it's wild that the government would have to create, I guess, for lack of better words, an office, a, a group to oversee it. And if we pass the bill today, it would take two years to enact that bill. To go into effect, yeah. Seymour, I wanted to switch gears here a little bit too. And, and have you found out through your organization or working with congressmen and senators here, uh, how big a problem assaults, sexual assaults, or even deaths involving rideshare companies? Yeah. So that's what I was actually um, alluding to before was that Uber and Lyft both did a self-report. So Uber self-reported for uh, the years of 2017, 18, and 19, and 20. And Lyft overlapped for those three years um, of 17, 18, and 19. Now, remember that in 2020, the industry was decimated because of COVID. Right. So when you combine their two numbers of what they self-reported, not my numbers, they reported this, not the government. Uber and Lyft both reported this. They reported 13,963 sexual assaults. Wow, it's unbelievable. It actually gets worse. Their total deaths between the two of them for those, those four years, three and four years, was 49 deaths. Mm. And that does not include my daughter because my daughter got into a car that was impersonating an Uber. Right. So right. they don't take any type of responsibility. And those deaths, do they break it down to, I mean, is, they're not all homicides. It could be somebody that's overdosed or, or you know, um, medical problems. Or, or are they saying, or are they saying anything about what caused those 49 deaths? Um, those are some drivers as well as passengers. So they're not breaking it down. They're saying that these are actually homicides. Homicides, wow. Yeah. Yeah, because the other side of this is obviously your daughter was victimized by an impersonator, but you also have crimes going on against rideshare operators. So, you know, uh, to me, it makes sense that all these companies want to do the maximum protection for their drivers and their passengers. So I hope. Uh, yeah, you I would hope every, think. Yeah. I've had conversations with the CEO of Uber, and then I had this uh, conversation with John Zimmer, the former CEO of Lyft, and I'm like, why don't you guys want to be the safest? Come out and say, you know what? The four-digit pin is the safest platform. We're going to be the safest rideshare company. And then you get pushed back saying, well, you can't say that. You know, Then you're setting yourself up for lawsuits. I'm like, Darren, you can actually figure it out and word it without saying that. You know, yeah, exactly. Seymour, you mentioned these rideshare companies, you know, having lobbyists and going in front of Congress. You know, they have the money. I mean, your organization, what you care about is saving people, providing the best training and education for those that use rideshare. You know, if, and just like the four digit pin, I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit more about that, what it's got to offer, how it could be uh, used as a great safety tool for rideshare uh, users. And then if you could just summarize your top three ways that people can to protect themselves from falling into uh, something bad when they go with a ride share. 
Yeah. So, um, the top things that I, when I talk to the kids or even adults, because it's just not the kids and those statistics that I had given you were 99% female, but I have gotten emails and direct messages and phone calls from males that they've woken up with their pants around their knees and that they've been sexually assaulted, but they are embarrassed and they tend not to report them. So when I speak to the different groups of colleges or airports or, um, or the kids, even in high school, you know, I talk about what to be safe, right? What are the things that in order to be safe, you know, one of the things is that I find that the four digit pen, that 99% of the population doesn't even know about the four digit pen from Uber that you have to verify and that it confirms your ride before getting into the car. Then when I'm talking about the SAMI acronym, when you combine and go through it, the S-A-M-I, the stop, A for ask the driver, what's my name, match the license plate and display, and then inform. And I always tell the kids, listen, I know you're not going to do the four things. I know it. You guys are too quick. You're too distracted. But if I can get you to do two of the four of ask the driver, what's my name and match and license plate, and then use the four digit pin. I think you're a lot safer. You've eliminated the imposters, right? You've eliminated that you've eliminated getting into the wrong vehicle. Nothing's hundred percent foolproof, but by doing those two things, you're a lot safer today than you were yesterday. And then I always bring it back to the amount of incidents from uh, that are self-reported from Uber and Lyft, the 13,963 sexual assaults and the 49 deaths. I try to bring that home. And I also go through recent incidents from last year and this year, you know, one slide each and how there were serial rapists of, you know, from drivers and so forth. So those are really the takeaways that I try to give the kids and adults those type of things. And, you know, Seymour, you, you bring up a great point about those statistics and everybody feels, well, that won't be me. That won't be my daughter or my son, but it very well could be. Obviously, you're living that nightmare because it happened to you. It happened to your family. It happened to your daughter. So I hope our listeners that are listening to uh, Seymour here today, um, understand that there are bad people out there, that you need to follow the rules, follow the steps, be safe. And, and if you're in a situation you don't feel safe, get out of it as quick as you can. Yep. And it, nothing matches from the app and in the license plate and the name. Don't even get in the don't car. Get, right? Don't get far. Yeah. You're right. You're right. That is the key to get people aware before they get into that vehicle. We can't be official lobbyists uh, because we're a 501c6, but you have our support, what you're doing, and uh, we would love to help your organization out uh, to get this word out. So we can't lobby because we're a 501c6, but we have your back, uh, Seymour, and uh, there's many more out there, many other associations that hopefully we could get on uh, board to support your uh, your mission here. Well, I appreciate it. And we can use as much help as possible getting the information out there as well as helping with uh, Washington, D.C. Um, 
Guys, before we finish up, and I appreciate you guys having me, Mike, Mark, I really do. Um, it's been great talking to you. But I just wanted to add and clarify one little thing that we then discussed was that, yes, the foundation creates a lot about safety for the passenger. Um, we do a lot for the passenger, but at the same time, what we are doing is actually creating two different things for the driver. One is we're actually creating more revenue for the driver because they're not getting the wrong passenger. They don't just drop them off and charge the other person for missing their ride $5. But what we're also doing is making sure that they have the right passenger, getting the um, the correct person in the car, knowing who they are, starting that relationship because it is a relationship. So it is a safety thing. So we're trying to provide safety, not just for the passenger, but also for the driver. And I think that's really important because I've gotten emails and phone calls and threatening phone calls saying that, you know, that what I'm doing is unsafe for the, for the driver. And it's not, we're actually creating a safer environment. And with the four digit pin from Uber, it does make it safer. We just need to get everybody else on board, the other 35 companies uh, on board to create the safety protocols before you get into the car. That is just an excellent point. You're trying to provide a safe environment for both entities here. Sounds like you have the perfect solution. And uh, Seymour, I also want to mention here, you know, like I said, I have a daughter who's in college, a son in high school here, is for those that uh, use rideshare, take these steps, take your time and take them before you get into the car. Take the picture of the license, you know, confirm the plate, you know, don't get into that vehicle. Don't feel embarrassed that the driver's going to look at you funny. Um, they expect that. Those are the, the, the rules for safety. So please take those pictures, verify the vehicle, ask them what's, uh, you know, what's your name and what's my name. And this way, you know, you're getting into hopefully a safe environment. Yeah, and it's and it's not awkward, and it's not you're not threatening them, and it, you're being safe. They appreciate it. They're actually some of the drivers will actually film you in the car to make sure that you don't do anything bad, and that's their protection, right? They're they're filming you, so you can do it right back. It's about being safe. You know, we teach our kids. Um, not to get into cars with strangers, not to talk to strangers. And that's exactly what you're doing is that getting into a car with a stranger So do what you have to, to be safe. Seymour, I guess I got you one more thing. Cause I was on your uh, website. I saw something there. There's a new series being released on Hula called death in the dorms that features a dedicated episode on your, your daughter, Samantha. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So we've done a couple of different documentaries. Um, the latest one that we did and the last one that we will do um, was just released and it's called on Hulu and it is called death in the dorms. It's a series that they came out with last year and this just dropped this past year in the last couple of months. I, I think, I think six months ago um, and it's called death in the dorms. And I think we're episode four or five and it's an hour long episode about what transpired. Um, they interviewed myself for four hours. They interviewed my wife, Sydney, uh, and one of their oldest friends, 
Jessica, who lives right down the street, that basically was their sister. And um, it's really about what transpired, how they found out, um, just walking through the day and where we are at today. Um, gotten a lot of great feedback from it, a lot of positive um, reinforcement. Well, it's just another avenue to get the message right. out. And, uh, you know, we appreciate you coming on the podcast and speaking to our listeners. Seymour, you are an incredible person. Your family is incredible. We appreciate what you're doing. Fight the good fight. And like I said, you have a friend with the IFCI here that will support you and your organization. So appreciate it. Seymour, again, too, I just want to thank you for coming on our podcast. It means so much. And what you do to protect our citizens, our children. That is awesome. So thank you very much. Uh, we wish you the best in your family, and uh, hopefully we get to talk to you again. I'll see you uh, at the ICLEA conference, too, and uh, looking forward to that. Yes, thank you very much for the, uh, for the time and the opportunity to uh, speak to you guys and to your listeners. So, Mark, somebody wants to listen to our show. Where do they go? Mike, you can find us on any of the major podcast platforms, including Google, Apple, Spotify, and if you want to give us an idea of a topic that you want to hear about or you want to come on the show, send us an email at ifciprotectorspodcast at gmail.com. So, Mike, with that, I'm going to sign off. I'm Mark Solomon from Connecticut. And I'm Mike Carroll from Chicago. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. Remember, as you join the fight to protect our citizens, you're not alone. With more than 6,500 members from around the world, the men and women of the IAFCI are standing together with you. To learn more or to join the IAFCI, please visit our website at www.iafci.org. The Protectors Podcast is produced by Modified Media and is available for free wherever you listen to podcasts. The hosts and guests' opinions are their own and do not reflect those of management, employers, or sponsors. Listeners are encouraged to contact law enforcement if they suspect being a victim of a crime.